Good morning, everybody. Depending on your perspective on myself and on Eric, you're either blessed to uh, have a change of pace today or else you're going to have to endure listening to me. So I'll let each one of you decide which the case may be. Um, Today's one of those days where I think it's a pretty safe bet that we can accurately guess what a good percentage of preachers around the country would be talking about. Right, It's the week coming up on Thanksgiving, so Thanksgiving would be a popular topic in, in pulpits today, I'm sure. And that's where I'm going to start as well, although that's not really the point of my message today, as you're going to see as we progress through this. You may want to have your Bibles ready. I'm going to reference quite a few scriptures. You may be able to turn to them fast enough. I'll try to give you time to turn to them if you want to read along. It shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that Scripture has an awful lot to say about Thanksgiving. Um, Some of the comments Jay made in his communion talk were a good lead-in for some of the things I'm going to talk about today. Just doing a really quick text search on the NIV um, translation, there's 30 references to the word, just the word Thanksgiving. Now, some of those are in translators' headings. They're not all in the text. But still, that's quite a few references to one single word, and that's just Thanksgiving. That doesn't include thankfulness, other forms of that, right? So let's talk about being thankful. What kinds of things do you have to be thankful for? <clears throat> I, would, I would say it's safe to say that every single person in here has quite a few things to be thankful for. Our lists are different, but what's on your list? Maybe health is on your list. Maybe you have great health. You've got the health to be here today. I'm sure of that because you're sitting here. Um, Maybe family is on your list. Not everybody has a perfect family situation. Some people have struggles with family situations, but some of us do have good family situations. If nothing else, you have this family that you're part of. Do you have a bed to sleep in? That's something to be thankful for. A lot of people don't have that. Do you have a house that's warm and heated to sleep in, to live in? Some people don't have that. Do you have food to eat? doesn't look like anybody here is starving. If, if you think you are, talk to somebody and we'll help you out. Do you have a means of transportation? You know, I I know we have one gentleman who's not here today, but he often talks about how blessed he is just to have an easy way to get around town with his bus card. Do you have some sort of income that helps you provide for the things that you need? Everybody's got clothes on. We must all be doing so-so there at least. I'm sure that every single one of us can come up with additional stuff on your list, right? Can you, can you think of other things that you're thankful for? So where do all of these things come from? Jay said it a little bit ago, and hopefully we would all agree that the ultimate source of all these good things that we have to be grateful for and thankful for is God. So I want to look at a few passages on that topic. So if you would turn to James 1. We're going to start in James 1 and find verse 17. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So every good and perfect gift is from above. That by itself is a pretty clear statement. I don't, you know, that's what scripture says. 
I would think the things that I named are good gifts. So they come from above one way or another. And then if you would turn to Psalm 16, which is the passage Fell read for us, we see a similar sentiment. Throughout that whole chapter, if you listened as Fell read it, there's various um, notes of thankfulness, gratefulness, um, goodwill towards God throughout that. Specifically, uh, let's read verse 1 and 2 and focusing on 2 there. Verse 1 says, Keep me safe, my God, for in, your, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. So it's not too big of a stretch to say that our thanksgiving for everything that we have to be thankful for should ultimately be directed towards God. Seems like that's what David was doing in Psalm 16. So then I ask the question, does God give blessings unconditionally? Does he? Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Let's explore that thought for a minute. So be turning to Matthew 5. We're going to read a little bit out of Matthew 5. Um, Starting in the middle of verse 45, Jesus, uh, speaking of the Father, he says, He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's from Matthew 5.45. So that's hopefully a familiar passage to many. So is that conditional or unconditional? Unconditional, right? That is an un- those are unconditional blessings. Everybody gets sunshine. Everybody gets rain. That's just how it is. Unconditional. Not all blessings that were given unconditionally. So flip back to uh, Joshua 23. I'm going to read several verses from Joshua 23. We're going to start out in verse 14. So I'm going to read the last three verses of that chapter from uh, Joshua 23, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. This is Joshua speaking. He says, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to, have come to you, so, you will bring on, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Pretty clear warning. Joshua here reminds the people that God has given them, quote, all good things promised, or all the good promises, rather. And he's kept his word. But then in the next breath comes this warning. Are the good things given unconditionally? No. Verse 16 says, if they violate the covenant, what? Bad things are going to happen to them, right? Those good things are going to go away. So while the people should rightly be thankful for the good things that they've been given, they should also remember that God is not going to tolerate certain things. So being thankful to God for all that he has given us is certainly right and proper. We know that he blesses us both materially and spiritually. We've observed the Lord's Supper today, which reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice, which resulted in presumably the single most important spiritual blessing that could ever be given to us, that of salvation and eternal life. In fact, at least in the NIV, and this is kind of interesting, the cup 
of the Lord's Supper, the cup in the NIV is referred to as the cup of thanksgiving in 1 Corinthians 10.16. So are you thankful when you take of that cup? Is the gift of eternal life given, though, without condition? No, I would say not. Um, There's definitely some conditions on that blessing. If we just back up to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, we see proof that our salvation is not unconditional. So I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Okay, so already in that passage, and we're going to keep going further, but already in that passage, we see that for the Israelites, their salvation from Egypt and the gift of the promised land was not given unconditionally, right? There were conditions on that, and they didn't hold up their end. So let's keep going, picking up in verse 6 there of 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So our salvation is not necessarily a permanent state, so long as we're in our earthly bodies. Paul here makes that clear that we can fall if we're not careful. Some would disagree with that, but I think Scripture's pretty clear on it. So we're blessed physically, we're blessed spiritually, and for that we should give thanks to God, but let's transition here to a different idea. What does God actually want from us? We receive many, many wonderful things from God, but what is it that God wants from us? I can be thankful easily enough. Maybe I attend worship each week and I I take of the cup of thanksgiving that we spoke of. Am I all all set? Is that all there is to it? Is that all it takes to be secure in the gift of salvation and eternal life? Maybe not. If I'm truly thankful for these things, what am I going to do? Well, If you're truly thankful to God, I think you're going to investigate and consider what it is that God wants from each one of us. There's a number of ways that we can approach this, but I want to start somewhere that um, even many in the world who are not terribly familiar with Scripture would would understand and recognize. I want to start today by talking, or pick up here, talking about the Ten Commandments. While it is true that the Ten Commandments are part of the Old Covenant, uh, most are contained in the New Testament as well. So turn to Exodus 20, and you're going to want to keep your finger there. We're going to keep going back to Exodus 20 over and over here for the next few minutes. Uh, Exodus 20, one of the places we see the Ten Commandments listed out. Verse number 3 has the first commandment. It is, you shall have no other gods before me. That one's pretty straightforward. 
Is that hard to understand? No? Right? So keep your finger there in Exodus and flip over to Matthew 22, verse 34. We're going to go through and look at some of these, each of these commandments and see where we can find evidence that they are still applicable in the New Testament. So Matthew 22, verse, starting in verse 34, says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So we're commanded to love God with all that we have, our heart, our soul, and our mind. So if you do that, doesn't that imply that you're going to be obedient to his commands? How can you do those things and not do what God asks us to do? And that leads right into the next commandment, flipping back to Exodus 20, verse 4. It says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I think that if we love God, as explained in the Matthew passage, that would preclude us from any idol worship. Don't don't you think that's true? But we can turn to 1 John 5.21 if you want a clear restatement of that. Uh, 1 John 5.21, the very last verse in that book or that letter, it says for uh, for a very simple statement is there. It says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Pretty much the same sentiment, right? Spelled out in just a few words. Now back to Exodus. Verse 7 has the third command. Third third commandment. It says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Perhaps your translation says, Do not use his name in vain. Something to that effect. So while there might not be an exact clear-cut restatement of that command in the New Testament, we can certainly see the same idea communicated several different places. Uh, One we can look at is Matthew 5.33 and following. We have a warning from Jesus against taking oaths, which may loosely fit, as it mentions not swearing by heaven because it's God's throne, and there's some other stuff there about the earth being his footstool, so don't swear by the earth. Um, We can also consider the opening of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.9 where Jesus states, hallowed be your name, hallowed hallowed be thy name. So if you're going to misuse God's name or use God's name in vain, is that really consistent with keeping his name hallowed? No, it doesn't seem right. And then 1 Timothy 6.1 states, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So we're not to do anything that causes God's name to be slandered. So we've got instructions not to let God's name be slandered here. And taken all together, I think these passages seem to support that third command still being in effect. Do not misuse God's name. Do not take God's name in vain. Now the fourth commandment is is the one exception. We, We don't see a restatement to honor the Sabbath in the New Testament. So I would argue that today we're probably accountable for keeping nine of the Ten Commandments Um, not all ten. For completeness, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to skip to the tenth commandment, the last one, because I want to come back and address the others as a group. So we'll go ahead and talk about the last commandment. 
Um, this one is often summed up as thou shalt not covet. From Exodus 20:17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Luke 12, 13 and, Luke 12, 13 and following contains an account where Jesus seems to reinforce this principle. I'll read that passage here. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then Paul also clarifies this thought in Romans 13, starting in verse 8. He says, Let no doubt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. I'm sorry, let me read the wrong word there. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul says, loving your neighbor includes not coveting. That makes a nice segue back to the commandments I skipped. So the fifth commandment from Exodus 20.12 is to honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Following that, we have commandments to not kill, to not commit adultery, to not steal, and to not bear false witness. So if you'll turn to Matthew 19, I'm going to read several verses here. Uh, It's a little bit of a longer reading. Starting in verse 16, so Matthew 19, 16, to the end of that chapter, Jesus sums up the thought that I want to spend the rest of my time on today in this passage. <clears throat> Matthew nineteen sixteen. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. 
This really gets to the heart of my sermon today. Earlier I asked you what it is that God truly wants from us. If we're truly thankful for the things God gives to us, what do we do in response for God? And Jesus answers that question, I think, in the passage that we just read. God expects that we obey his commands, but physically keeping a law is not the goal. Yes, obedience is important and good, but what God wants is complete dedication. That's what he told this rich young ruler. That's what he told the apostles. That's where the gentleman in this passage we read falls short, potentially. We don't know what happened after that. Maybe he did that. But that was an area where perhaps he fell short. So how do you fully dedicate yourself to God? What does full dedication to God look like? Well, the answer to that's going to be different for each one of us. You know, I can't tell you what it looks like for you, and you can't tell me what it looks like for me. <clears throat> so ask yourself some questions, and let's start with an easy one. Why are you here today? So be honest with yourself. You're the only person that knows the answer to this. Are you here because this is what you've always done on Sunday mornings? That could be a reason you're here. If so, then maybe, maybe you're more dedicated to a routine than to God, right? Just because you're here doesn't mean you're dedicated to God. It means, it means you're here. Are you here today because you want to make a family member happy? Well, that could be a reason you're here. Well, maybe you're more dedicated to family than to God. Are you here today because this is what God demands of you? Well, salvation is not attendance-based. It just isn't. So getting your ticket punched, so to speak, isn't what Christianity is all about. That's a works-based mentality. If I attend church every Sunday, then I am good with God, right? That's not how it really works. Are you here because you're thankful for all that God has done for you? Are you here because you have such reverence for God that you feel compelled to get together and worship him? Are you here to honor Jesus by participating in the Lord's Supper? Well, those all sound like pretty good reasons to be here to me. So what else is wrapped up in complete dedication to God? An important concept that's woven throughout much of the New Testament is that we as Christians are the body of Christ on earth. Hopefully we all understand and agree that that's the case. So to offer a couple of references for this, consider 1 Corinthians 12, 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You can also look at Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Um, Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We are the body of Christ. Can we all agree to that? It's clear in scripture. That is what we as the church are. So if we're going to be completely dedicated Christians, fully showing thankfulness in every aspect of our lives, then we have to live up to be in the body of Christ on earth. Does anybody think that's easy? That sounds like a very challenging task to me. That goes way beyond keeping a handful of commands, right? We must be doing the work of Christ here on earth. So what does that entail? What did Christ do while he was on earth? Well, I think I know what the most important task is. I think I know this one. But before I tell you what I think the answer is, let me ask you a question. And you're going to have to stick with me on this. And don't, don't race ahead because you're going to think I'm crazy. So what was one of the hardest things for disciples to understand while Jesus was walking the earth and teaching? Just think about that. What, what, was the, what was one thing that they consistently failed to grasp? How many times did Jesus have to clarify that he was establishing a physical king, or a spiritual kingdom, rather, not a spiritual? Try this again. He was establishing a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. Um, how many indications do we have in scripture that the old law was very physical in nature, but the new law is spiritual? That's a fair statement, correct? And that was really, really hard for those first disciples and for the apostles at times to grasp. They kept sticking to the physical, not grasping the spiritual. So keeping that in mind, what were some of the most amazing acts Jesus performed while on earth? Think about all the stuff Jesus did while he was on earth. What pops into your mind as the most amazing? Well, I would hope that you would agree that when he healed people and when he raised them from the dead, those things would probably qualify as pretty doggone amazing. Wouldn't you say? Haven't seen anybody else doing that. So this is where I said you guys stick with me for a minute. If we're going to be the body of Christ on earth, then... We should be doing the same things. And we can, but I don't mean that we're going to go around physically healing people and physically raising people from the dead, right? Some would argue that that's possible. I would argue that that's not something that we can do. But keeping in mind the transition from physical to spiritual, we do have the power to spiritually heal people, and we do have the power to spiritually raise people from the dead. Have you ever thought about that before? We have everything we need to spiritually raise someone from the dead. We operate under a spiritual kingdom and we have power to do miraculous things in a spiritual sense, not by our own powers and not by anything that we can do. And I'm not talking about laying hands on people, right? That's not what I'm talking about, not physical. But we have the full armor of God to protect us and we have the full word of God, which contains the good news of salvation, for all who believe. What more do we need? 
When you see someone living a worldly life, separated from God by sin, they are in fact spiritually dead. Can we agree on that point? If you are living apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from salvation, what is your spiritual state? You are spiritually dead. When you see someone like that, do you recognize them as such? Is that how you see them? When you see your neighbor and you know that your neighbor has no interest in God, do you see them as spiritually dead? Because that, that's the reality. So we have the power of the gospel. Each one of you may be holding it in your hands right now. We have it in convenient book form, the gospel, the full, the full gospel there. And with the power of the gospel... It has the power to raise them to a new eternal life. Or, at the very least, we can present them with the opportunity for them to take hold of that life themselves. We cannot force it on them. We can't make them believe in Christ. We can't make them accept Christ. But we have, we have Christ has given us the good news and the means to deliver that to those who need to hear it. Hopefully that all made sense. Hopefully you don't think I'm advocating crazy, radical things. I hope I made that clear. If you think I said something there and went too far, you can tell me later and we can talk about it. So what does God want of us? Well, he expects that we are the dedicated body of Christ on earth, showing the same dedication to him that his son, Jesus Christ, showed while on earth. Is that what you're striving for? Well, as I said earlier, I think that's a really tall order. I don't think that I could live the life Jesus lived, right? That would be extremely impossible, right? We cannot live a sinless life. He was the only one who ever was able to do that. So the good news is, is that we have something else to be thankful for. And that's God's grace. Because when we fall short of the goal of living a Christ-like life, which I'm confident we all fall short of that goal, we have God's grace that makes up for our shortcomings. But we do need to have that as our goal. We need to be living the life of Christ's body on earth, collectively and individually. So that's something for you to ponder. Is that really the goal that you have? Maybe you're here today and you're not part of the body of Christ. Maybe you haven't given him, given your life to him by being immersed for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, if that's the case, the good news is that we have the good news. So even though you may be dead in your sins right now if you are not in Christ, Jesus did pay the price for your sins. And you can partake in eternal life by being buried with him in baptism. So if that's the case, there are plenty of people here today that would love to study with you and show you the power of the gospel to raise you from spiritual death to a new life. So if you need to be raised to a new eternal life, please come forward now as we stand and sing. Jesus Christ.